Okay, welcome back to Firewall. I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. It's a Tuesday episode, so we're here with our friend and producer, Hugo Lindgren. Hugo, how you doing? Good morning. This is officially the dog days of August. I mean, like, the city feels bucked up in a kind of, like, deserted, like, nothing's happening. It, it does, but, and we'll, we'll actually kind of get into that a, a little bit. Although I will say, I was in the city all weekend, and the weather was just perfect. Really? Yeah. How did, I mean, how did, I, you, how did you use the weather? Um, very, very well. Uh, I was, and I'll, I'll go through some, some of this in my recommendations. Okay. But I was at uh, the end. I was, I was in, walked all over Queens for on Saturday, all over, meaning Jackson. Took the train to Jackson Heights, walked to Corona, then walked to Flushing. Did you have a goal in mind, or you yes. were just strolling? so it was? Um, I went to the Jackson Diner in Jackson Heights, yep. which I would say is still that's Indian food, good, right? but you know what. 20 years ago, when I used to go there, for, by the way, it moved across the street into a space that seems like it's like one-tenth the size, so they're clearly not doing great. Um, and I think uh, either the quality of Indian food more broadly kind of caught up, or as I could spend more than nine ninety nine for food, um, I discovered that Jackson's Diner maybe wasn't that great. So food did taste better when you paid less and couldn't afford the... Yeah, but it was still very good. And yeah. then it was a very long walk, about 45 minutes to the Corona Ice King, um, which was great in that they have cantaloupe ices, which I love. Um, the bummer is that nobody... That's the best bocce court. You're a man court. of special needs. <laughs> that's the best bocce court in the city. Nobody was playing, so that was a little bit of a bummer. Oh, right. And right. then, and this will be... I'll just go early on this one. So then I went to the Queens Museum to see... My favorite, one of my favorite things in the world, which is the panorama. Yeah, the panorama. It's amazing. I fucking love it. And I, how is it doing great, the panorama? Well, it hasn't been updated since 1992. So I sent our friend Howard a uh, text over the weekend. Get that shit done, that, Howard. That it would be make sense for Bloomberg to offer to pay to upgrade it because so much of it would capture his work and his legacy, yeah. his progress. Yeah. Um, I don't know. But, you know, at the end of the day, everybody has great ideas for how Mike should spend his money, and the only person who matters is yeah. Mike, maybe Patty. But he does listen to Howard, though. Um, yeah, but I don't know if Howard really cares. Does Howard listen to us? That's the question. No, um, no, no. <laughs> no. Um, but I, but the panorama is fucking awesome. So that was like, but I think I clocked like four to five miles walking in Queens. So that was pretty good, and I did like some Upper East Side, like uh, Guggenheim and the Met, and kind of kind of balance it out a little. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I, I feel like I did a decent amount of, of walking outside. Okay. So now on to the serious subjects, although that's, you know, that's serious enough. Walking so yeah, so he, here's the agenda. We're going to do two, two quick hits, one on drug legalization and one on presidential debating. Then we're going to get a little more in depth on Rudy Giuliani's struggles on last month delivery on sports betting. Um, there was this David Brooks column and another column in the Atlantic article, um, but we might get to if we have time. I don't think we will. Um, and then recommendations. So okay. I have several. Okay. So let's start with the with the drug legalization uh, idea. You well, it's not an idea well, you I'm, have. I'm laying down a marker. You're laying down a marker. Or okay. maybe I'm maybe I'm just part of what is I want to show you guys the listeners that I am capable of reevaluating my thoughts and recognizing when I might be wrong and admitting to it and evolving. And I would say my views on drug legalization are um, definitely starting to change a little bit based on the fact that just the evidence that I see right in front of me in terms of not just this insane proliferation of illegal weed shops and all of the people and all of the kids especially who are just getting hooked on that. It's so potent and so available and no laws are under enforced. But, you know, guys that are clearly using Trank and fentanyl who are just, do you see these guys on the street? I mean, it's like as if they were just in mid-motion stopped and fell asleep 
but they're still like in you know like sitting up or like half bent over like remember when you like your your daughters were like super super infants and they do this weird thing you go into their room and they would have like a limb shot up in the air because kids like their nervous system isn't developed yet i mean it's kind of like that but they're all over you know i live on crosby street and they're fucking all over littered on crosby street of these fucking junkies and I don't really feel empathy for them in the way that I do for sort of, I guess, the regular homeless, if that's now a term. Um, and so, and you combine sort of just this, seeing the impact of at least these newer drugs like fentanyl and trank, combined with the proliferation and addictiveness, I think, of weed, combined with the fact that some of the places that have experimented, whether it's Portland, Oregon, or, or Portugal, um, with drug legalization, you know, haven't had great results. Now, maybe because they fucked up the implementation, but nonetheless, all leads me to sort of question whether my thesis of if we were to legalize it, we would make it a lot better is right. Um, well, let's I, talk about your yeah. existing legalization view. Is it is it that more or less everything should be available? No, but, I, I but mean, regulated it, it, and, the, the way I had at least been thinking about it was you would pick a handful of drugs probably one or so from each category, so uh, an opioid, a barbiturate, an amphetamine, and so on. Um, and those would be sold at like the equivalent of like state liquor stores, have tested, heavily regulated, taxed, um, but effectively inexpensive enough that people choose to go through that process rather than the black market. You sort of dry up the black market, and that get rid gets rid of massive amounts of gang violence and death and incarceration and racial disparities and sentencing and I think putting whole generations of young men sort of at disadvantage because they're, they're coming out of jail and never got an education. Um, it seems to me that we have such a massive drug problem already that at least solving that side of the problem is very doable because, again, we live this with prohibition, right? And we right. don't have you know, gang wars about alcohol. There's no big black market for moonshine, right? Yeah, so not like, anymore. It, it it would work. And I think especially, and I talked about this a few weeks ago, um, getting, you know, if everything were kind of controlled and tested and the, and the producer was Unilever, you're not going to have fentanyl, you know, in, in the product. But you're not going to have fentanyl in the product, but there will there still be like those guys uh, that, that you're talking about on the street, right? They are after some kind of hard drug, right? Because they are taking... Yeah, Very but I, I just, if they could get, I'm making this up, but if right. they could get heroin legally and cheaply, I don't know that they need, they would, it's it's a little hard to prescribe rational thought and behavior to people whose brains or are addicts, that, yeah. you know, destroyed by addiction. Um, but with all of that said, the flip side of everything I just said is also incredibly problematic. Maybe there's a middle ground where there's more decriminalization but not legalization. I, I don't know. So I, I would say my views are evolving on this, but given that I have frequently on this podcast argued for drug legalization as I was walking around the city this weekend, especially, I was like, I need to be honest with the listeners and with myself and that my views are, are evolving. Well, I guess it's something we'll, 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 we'll try to sort out some good guests to talk about this, uh, both you know on the maybe on the more extreme legalization side and also on, on the interesting arguments for some kind of enlightened sort of you know, regulatory, legal, criminal sure. kind of um, uh, yeah, great. state. Yeah, yeah let's do it. Um, we want to talk about quickly about the Republican debate. I know you. I, I sort of talked you yeah. back into putting this on the agenda when, when, when we, just when we were talking about the episode. The the current state is Trump is uh, officially announced he's not participating in the first Republican debate on Fox. Despite correct, a, he did an interview with Tucker Carlson instead. Or he's going to do that, right? Or he did, or whatever. There's one is going to post, I guess, at the same time as the debate. Right. Um, um, 
And that that makes a lot of sense for him as a candidate because yeah, all of the- I mean, I, I think, and if you extrapolate a little further, I don't think Trump should debate the other Republican nominees from a campaign strategy standpoint. Right. And I don't think Biden should debate Trump if Trump is the, the nominee. Um, and I think that ultimately- we, I definitely don't want him. I just don't want to have to think about it or see it or anything. We, yeah, I mean, I don't want him to do it because I think Trump will do better than Biden and it will only increase chance, Trump's chances of winning. I, I think that we should see debates as not a civic good or duty that candidates have and purely a mechanism of which to potentially reach voters. And then you have to decide, is this the right mechanism for me or not? I think part of my perspective on this is I wish in retrospect that I had spoke up and said, I don't think Mike Bloomberg should participate in the Democratic primary debates in 2020. I did not say that, and I really wish I had. Um, and I knew intuitively that, you know, Mike, the reason why Mike would have been a great president is because he is like so focused on substance and he's such a great leader and he is doesn't play to the cameras. ethical and doesn't make decisions based on politics and everything else. He would have been incredible. Like, I think I told the story that. I was, you know, I'd spent a little time traveling with him during the presidential, and I was sitting at breakfast with him, and he looked kind of pensive, and I asked him what was on his mind, and he told me he was thinking about how he would run the postal system. Where was like, you are the only presidential <laughs> candidate in history, at least since like 1924. Would he shut it down? What was he going to do? No, that? no, it's just how do you make it more efficient? Right. I think it's got, you know, it, it, I think there's opportunity for improvement. It was like fucking amazing, right? right? But at the same time, he's not a politician. That's not his his strength at all. And he came in way late, like a year and a half after everyone else, to people who are like Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders or Pete Buttigieg or you know whoever who are just like exceptionally good at this stuff. They've spent their whole lives doing it. Um, and putting Mike out there basically ended the uh, his campaign. And in retrospect, I think there was not a civic duty that he debate. And I think had he not debated and COVID hit, I don't know. I mean, basically what happened was Biden won South Carolina, COVID hit, everyone sort of implicitly said, well, Bernie Sanders is not actually a serious person. He can't be the president during a global pandemic. And then everyone just coalesced around Biden and that was that. I don't know that that couldn't have happened for Mike, but it certainly couldn't once he debated. So what that has led me to think is like every candidate should solely use debates solely if it is the best political strategy. So if you're the challenger, if you are particularly talented at debating, if you are like... Chris Christie is going to use this because he's really good at it to try to get whatever attention he can. Um, or if you're like not a serious contender, so being on the debate stage sort of validates right. you, right? Um, like de Blasio and ran for president, you know, he was at least Didn't on really the stage. Didn't really work out for him. Yeah. But for Free Yang, it gave him the chance to kind of build his name. That was Yang's whole, that was his breakthrough. Yeah, it worked. So it, 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 I'm not saying that it's not the right strategy to use, but I think it has to be very context dependent and there shouldn't be a presumption that you should have to do it. Well, let's go back to 2016 for a second. So when the first Republican debate happens, is Jeb leading in the polls at that point? I, I mean, don't it, remember now, but yeah, I think so. And so, so he basically stands there on a stage with like remember. the 500 candidates, Trump wipes the floor with him. And that's like the end of Jeb kind of like right yeah. there and then. Yep. So if Jeb had, you know, thought about this, I think the problem both Jeb and Hillary so underestimated Trump, right. and so, no, so right. overestimated themselves that they, they <laughs> thought they would be fine and right. they, they weren't fine. Right, that's a very good point. Um, should we talk about our good friend Rudy Giuliani? Yeah, um, yeah. So Rudy, uh, well, it just keeps getting worse and worse for him. Yeah, I, I guess what I wanna try to figure out is is how we went from there to here, right? So I'll, I'll tell you my, my the, 
story where I saw Rudy, in my view, at his finest. I'm remembering this story, and but go ahead. Like it's tw- a good one. 22 years ago, right. and then sort of where we are today. Okay. So it was September 12th, um, and there was a meeting Nine, at— 2001. 2001, sorry. Right. Um, you know how there's that police training building on, like, 20th between 2nd and 3rd? It is the police academy, is it not? I thought they now have one in Queens. Did dead. they move it? But, but it's still a okay. precinct at the very least. Yes. Anyway, but there was a meeting that evening. Uh, it was Rudy. It was Pataki, who was the governor. It was Chuck, and I was in the meeting simply because I was with Chuck. Yep. Hillary, who was the other senator at the time. Uh, Joel Alba, who was the head of FEMA, congressional members. That was the day of the mayoral primary that canceled, so you had the candidates there. So you had just massive egos, massive personalities in the room. Rudy, at this point, isn't even the most famous person in the room. Hillary is, right? Um, kind of a newbie in New York, though. And... and he ran that fucking meeting in a way that I was like, holy shit, all of these people who only ever think about themselves, all they were doing was like, yes, Mr. Mayor, taking notes diligently. It was as if everyone there was staff. The only person who acted differently was Fernando Ferrer, who like gave some fucking arrogant speech about how the people of the Bronx were being underrepresented in, in planning <laughs> in or whatever. days after 9 and, and like every other hours. person in the ro- room rolled their eyes like this guy's such yeah. an asshole. Um, and he is. But um, <laughs> but outside of that, like, and then I was at a lot of events because I was with Chuck where Rudy was, you know, speaking and leading and, and he did exude this incredible sense of leadership and he was in charge and he had empathy and it was absolutely incredible so that was the height right do you think there's been as important a political moment in the united states since then like what would even be something that since would then, be- no i was gonna say d you know pearl harbor right right uh, or d-day uh pearl harbor or d-day or dropping the bomb i guess those would all be on that list um but I just mean in our lifetime. No, like I'm trying to think of like maybe when I'm now going where back to so maybe really LBJ mattered. when Kennedy was assassinated. Right. Maybe that moment. Yeah. Um, since then, no. But things have also fallen, and this sort of tracks the Rudy story so far, so fast that I think even that notion of someone stepping up in an incredible unified leadership, I'm not sure that that's even possible today. And one of the things that September 11th that was noteworthy was that. Um, it, both politicians from both parties and even just regular. I remember writing an op-ed for Chuck for the Daily News just about how, like, people on the subway, everyone was gentler. Everyone for a couple of months was just nicer, gentler, kinder, sort of George H.W. Bush's dream, I guess. Um, and then it kind of reverted to normal, though normal now is a zillion times worse than normal then. Um, but but there, so I don't know that we even have the context today for if the country were attacked today, you would think we'd all come together, but we didn't all come together for COVID. That was a form of an attack. Or we have people in the political world who are saying we should be supporting Putin and not not Ukraine, right? That seems insane. So I, I don't know that that's even capable today. But the question is, you now have Rudy who is um, under criminal indictment. I think he's in something like over 10 separate um, civil litigation against all where he is the defendant. Um he has been disbarred, so he can't practice law and make money doing that. I saw that he put his apartment in the Upper East Side up for sale. He has massive legal debt and bills. Um, how did this guy fall so far, right? It's really one of like the greatest examples of sort of the absolute height to the absolute bottom. And, and I think it's sort of this combination of, and the reason why it matters is because I think other people, this, this could happen to as well, which is A, 
desperate pursuit of relevance. So that that's true for every politician, but I think Rudy just has the need for attention and adoration. And I think 9-11 probably just only made it worse for him in a way. Um, that's just- Well, it's had a standard he could never get back to, that's for sure. Correct. So you combine that with, he hasn't had any actual responsibilities in 20 years, right? He had his consulting firm. It was mainly a load of shit. They basically got a lot of money for giving speeches and, and mediocre consulting advice. Um, he had a law firm or two that didn't work out. But he hasn't actually been like in charge of anything. So you have in this 2000, guy. He ran in 2008, right? Yeah, that was it. And that was a debacle, right? He got one vote. Uh, or one, he won like one, one delegate. Yeah, one delegate. Um, so fundamentally, since he stepped, and the truth is 9-11 was the very end of his mayoralty. It was the last few months. So he hasn't actually had a real job since then. And I think- You don't think being uh, Donald Trump's lawyer is a real job? Feels like not might be the, one of the worst jobs. Not in the, in the way he seems to have executed it. Well, no. he didn't get paid too, right? He's now about to go to jail for it. So, um, and, and then combine with you know alcoholism. And I don't think I'm speaking out of school here. And I look, I haven't talked to Rudy in over a decade. I think um, we get him to come on the podcast. Probably not after this little. No, little I don't thing. think so. Um, and um, but you know, occasionally I'll sort of talk to people from that Giuliani world um, who you know just. Does he still have a circle of people? No, he doesn't. Right. There, no, none of them are in touch with him from what I can tell. But occasionally when I just come across them and we, we chit-chat about politics, that's what... So what when Rudy gets up do. in the morning with just some awful sort of head full of trauma... I think he just has to, like, there's a woman suing him that he kind of lured into his team and then somehow managed to start having sex with, even though she was, like, 25 and beautiful and he's 80 and disgusting. Um, <laughs> and now she's suing him, of course. Um <laughs> So, no, I, I don't think he really does. It's just like the, the Sidney Powell types at this point or the other nuts. Um, but, you know, they all do cite his alcoholism as another thing, right, where his judgment has become so adult yeah. in his brain, not unlike the junkies on the street we were talking about. And so if you combine um, desperate need for relevance and adoration with no actual substantive responsibilities now for over two decades with uh, even if we want to be kind and call it a disease, nonetheless, something that he has chosen to do that has severely diminished his judgment and capacity to not do stupid things um, led to this incredible downfall. Okay, let me, let me ask you a, a, a magic wand question. Yeah. Um, you're, you're a young guy, um, and you have a chance to work for Rudy right now. No. And No, I know you wouldn't do it, right? No, I, I mean, I don't think anybody should do it. Right. But like, what... First of all, he would have to stop drinking if he's still drinking. We don't know if he is or not, so that's that's not really a question right. we can address. But what would what is something that someone in his position could do in order just to reclaim some smidgen of like public respectability? Like, what's even conceivable? Flip on Trump, right? Own all that of that doesn't your... seem to work out for anyone who does that, though, right? Chris Christie doesn't look like some savior. No, well, I mean, by the way, now you're you're asking me for like smidgens at the margin, right? <laughs> so the smidgen at the <laughs> margin, all, if, 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 if Rudy came to us today and said, I'll do anything, what do I do? And right. all I want to do is regain any shred of yeah. respectability. I want to walk down the street before and have I die, not, like run right? away. Then I think he cooperates with all of the different investigations. He flips, he publicly owns all of his actions and takes responsibility for all of it. Does he, he write like a book that's asks, got every like I don't even know that dirty secret in it? I mean, I guess somebody could write it for him. I don't think he's even capable no, of, of doing course, it at this right, point. Right. But, um, you know, he asked for forgiveness, and then he is the star witness for the prosecution. And then, this is the most important part, he goes away, right?
right? So Michael Cohen kind of managed to ultimately turn it around a little bit. Now he's running for Congress, apparently, against Nadler. He'll get, like, 4% in the primary or whatever. But, you know, Michael— How does, how does Michael Cohen, like, how does he even have enough money to run for anything? Like, how is he— His family's wealthy, and he made money before, I guess, he lost his law license. Maybe it's—I don't know if it's been reinstated or not. So, you know, he, you know, so he owned a lot of taxis, things like that. So, but the po- point, point Those being— Those are worth a lot. The, I remember Peggy Noonan once wrote this column about the Profumo affair, which was a big scandal in England in like the 70s? Okay, 80s. yeah. It's like one of those terms. And I, I read it because me. I once was at a client. Wait, you read a book on the Profumo No, scandal? no. I just read oh. her. I, read, I looked up. I just read a little bit about it because I had a client, Standard Chartered Bank, and they were having their board meeting. And I guess what they would do is sort of go to different exotic-ish location. So they rented out this incredible like downtown Abbey, down, downtown Abbey type estate outside of London. And I was there, staying there, because I was one of the speakers at the board meeting, right? Okay. I was giving them some strategy and advice. And it was where the Profumo affair took place. Ooh. And so I then read up on it a little bit. And Peggy Noonan, who, who I think, you know, maybe at this point, I'm not sure she has that much left to add in her columns, but I think she did for a long time. Um, and, and she's a wonderful writer. Yeah, she's be quite funny. Yeah, she made this point that one of the things that Profumo did to her that was so worthwhile is he disappeared. Like, and what he did was he disappeared into acts of service, and not acts of service where he tried to get attention for it or credit, but literally would like wash the feet of the poor and volunteer hospitals and soup kitchens and like in a genuine attempt for penance as a human being, not a, not as a sort of a second act as a politician. Um, so I think the final piece is that Rudy would have to do a Profumo. Okay. Well said. Glad I asked you that. Thanks. Um, a good answer. You worked in Profumo? I mean, I mean I've been I waiting for up. how many po- – we've been doing this for years now. I've been waiting to mention Profumo for years. <laughs> and now finally well, – well. In fact, I don't – this is probably our last podcast. I don't think we need to keep oh, going. Oh, really? It's I, over? I think <laughs> I've, I've now finished the bucket list. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, on to uh, everybody's um, favorite issue, um, uh, Amazon vans clogging the streets of American cities. What should we be doing about this? Yeah, so again, this is a little bit of a, of a half-form thought, but it seems to me so that, I think it was the Times, had a, a pretty good story at some point last week about just sort of this massive congestion problem we have with, and it's not just Amazon, it's, it's all of the different companies sure, that are right. you know, sending stuff. Um, and as a result, um, the streets are more clogged than ever. The sidewalks are more clogged than ever. And then, look, maybe I am not objective here because I, I own a retail business that I guess saying we compete with Amazon is absurd. We lose business to Amazon. Um, but it seems to me that there's a real interest, if you're the city of New York, in reviving retail, right? And so one argument that I've been making for a while, and of course no one's fucking been able to do anything about it, um, is that we need to change the tax incentives that landlords have so that right now, based on the covenants of their leases and development agreements and a lot of other shit like that, and I only sort of partially understand it, um, it is often more economical for them to let a storefront stay vacant than it is to rent it out, right? I have been saying for a while, we need to change the incentives on that so that there is no tax on vacancy. Yeah, there's no world in which it is more economical because any retail other than illegal weed shops is better than no retail. Right. Um, And then on top of that, we now have this additional problem that for the same reason that physical retail is going away is everybody gets everything online. Instead, um, and then because of that, our streets are even more, and sidewalks are more clogged and congested than ever. 
as a result of all of the delivery. So I wonder if there should be some form of congestion pricing for New York City residents or maybe even just Manhattan residents ordering from uh, Amazon and some of these giant you know, companies and we actually create economic disincentives for people to choose to do that uh, over going to retail. We create economic disincentives for um, landlords to leave storefronts vacant. Um, we, and this is where I get going to go from liberal to conservative, really crack down on street crime and vagrancy. It's not okay to urinate publicly. It's not okay to graffiti. It's not okay to shoplift. And we bust all those people and put them in Rikers um, so that I can go to CVS. One reason why I'm more likely these days to order toothpaste on Amazon is... You don't have to have it unlocked. Yeah, it's just a fucking pain in the ass, you know? And like, so you've got to also make the cities, you know, get us out of the doom loop. But some combination of things that I guess some of these be perceived as very liberal and anti-market and some of these would be perceived as very conservative um, and anti-social justice. But I think... Just create a different environment. I I think you have to because I just don't see a world where it's not like the internet's going away or weakening in any form, right? And even if some of the regulations we like to talk about in this podcast, like Section 230, happened, that would have no impact on people's incentives to buy online as opposed to buying in person. Um, And also, like I just think about this bookstore... Now, look, I, I didn't build this in a way that could be profitable. This podcast studio is free for anyone to use. As far as we know, it's the only one in New York like that. We let the community, both the publishing community and the Lower East Side community, use the event space for free. Um, the people who stock the shelves here have the same type of health care as people who work in my venture capital fund. So it was not built to, you know, with the expectation that, that it would be a, a big moneymaker. Um, but, but retail can't be philanthropy, right? For me, it's effectively a form of philanthropy where it's like, I love books and I, you know, I feel an obligation to this this particular community because it helped my family get started in this country. And so I'm trying to do something nice. And for as long as I can afford to lose this much money, and maybe at some point I won't be able to, but for as long as I can afford to, I'm willing to do it. But that's not a viable economic strategy, right? And so I just think you have a, a world where retail will get less and less and less because the economics just don't work. Congestion will get worse and worse. Quality of life will get worse and worse. Um, and then, you know, once all the cool stores kind of disappear, New York City's attractiveness um, really diminishes. And look, it, there, it's not a comp- there, there's, there's not total elasticity in people's willingness to put up with shit to live here. So you've already got high taxes, incredibly high cost of living, endless regulations. You're dealing with crime. You're dealing with homelessness. You're dealing with no matter how rich you are, you're still putting up with kind of quality of life problems this sort of moral excoriation from the far left. And at a certain point, if the value prop of the city isn't there, if there aren't fun things to do, then eventually you're like, fuck it. Now, I don't think we're at that point right now, but could we be there at this pace in five years? Absolutely. Um, And so, you know, you put all those things together and it just seems to me that you need a plan to save retail in New York City and I think some of it comes from changing the tax incentives for landlords. Some of it comes from really cracking down on quality of life violations. But some of it maybe also comes from creating economic disincentives to buy from places like Amazon. It seems like whose who's responsibility is this, looking at these issues in exactly that way, that synthetic way? Is there, there's no one at City Hall who, I mean, there's economic development I mean, in, people. In theory, the like, deputy mayor for economic development or the head of, of EDC um, I, I just don't keep in mind two things. One, everything I just said is in a political vacuum, right? Now, I do believe that at the end of the day, if you are the incumbent mayor and you improve quality of life and you reduce crime, you will get reelected regardless of who else you piss off. 
But they're all under the belief, like, you can't make real estate mad. Those guys are the key to everything. And, like, yeah, they give money. There's no question about it. But you know what? They don't give that much fucking money. And, like, other groups <laughs> give, nobody likes them. <laughs> give money, too. And, like, so, yeah, they would vigorously oppose anything that would sort of raise uh, their costs in any way. And not that Amazon has any political power in New York, but they would hire a billion lobbyists, and they would try to oppose it. Um, you know, and, and then the far left would get really upset if you started putting addicts in jail, right? So, you know, all the things I'm calling for would gore somebody's ox and, and create political problems. So part of it is I don't know that this administration engages in this level of sort of just free thinking. I think that that's pretty rare in government. Um, we did have it in the Bloomberg world, but I think it was an exception. Um, and I think part of it is, you know, this administration is very bound by kind of political realities, and especially coming from a world where, you know, you're thinking about it from the perspective as a state senator or borough president, you know, really sort of low-level local shit. Um, and so I think for all of those reasons, I, I don't see anyone in this administration who's thinking this way. Um, now, for the same reason that, like, I remember when my daily news column, Bob Greenlee and I wrote it, uh, calling for giving the city, just giving the migrants work permits um, without, you know, federal approval. You know, I, I talked to some people at City Hall after that, um, and they just made up a bunch of excuses as to why they can't do it, right? And they were all sort of vaguely acceptable from a political operational standpoint. But at the end of the day, it was just excuses for not fixing a problem. And what's the fucking point at working at City Hall? Um, anyone who's super talented working at City Hall could make a lot more money doing something else and probably working fewer hours too. So the only reason to do it is because you have the chance to make things different and better, right? If it's just to maintain the status quo, who the fuck needs you? Go have a better quality of life somewhere else. So, you know, you got to push for this stuff. And that was the advice I was giving people. But um, again, I have the freedom at this point of being independent politically, being independent financially. Although I will say, you know, I remember when I worked for Henry Stern, he, he said, I want people who will say no, even if it'll cost them their job. I was definitely that person. Um, but, you know, at the same time, I had tremendous conflict when I worked for Henry, when I worked for Chuck, when I worked for, not, not with Mike, because Mike was so different, when I worked for Rod, um, because I would either come up with crazy ideas that were politically problematic, or I would tell them that their ideas were stupid, or whatever it was. So even though I was able to, as a result, push through more things that were meaningful, um, you know, my quality of life was diminished by the fact that I was at war with my boss all the time. So, you know, I, I, I get how all this stuff plays out, but I do wish there were someone in the Adams administration whose job was just to sort of think of interesting shit and have some authority to implement it. Um, we have one more topic and then we're going to go to the recommendations. Although, yeah. did you give all your recommendations? Maybe no. You oh, you have, you have more. I have more. Okay. I had like um, a whole weekend of like culture. I know. You walked all over Queens. We, yeah. It's amazing. So um, we, uh, I sent you this idea, the startup that uh, aims to kind of integrate sports betting into television, in, into the live yeah. like sports um, experience, which seems like a kind of inevitable thing. Yeah. Right? This, I mean, this has been happen. the future for right. a very long time. You're going to be watching, you know, uh, they, I guess they're starting with Major League Rugby, which seems, at least in the United States... I mean, that that's sounds, what everyone really wants to get on. <laughs> is that is that big guy with no neck? Was there a lot of gambling on the, the women's guy with World no Cup? What's that? Is there a lot of gambling on the women's World I Cup? I read something that there was gambling on the World Cup that that it was it was um, that it become. I mean, you can never tell what the propaganda is versus the reality in that business because they just have to hype everything. But yeah. the um, I watched the game yesterday. Did you? Yeah, I did. It was fine. I, you know what? I, you know, I actually did want to say one thing about this. Did you read it all about all the controversy within the Spanish? Yeah, yeah, Federation? I read the story today. Yeah. So, so think how funny it is, right? The team that wins, like that, the best in the world, 
has what appears to be the shittiest coaching, the shittiest like sort of support system for the players. And yet, if you watch the games, all they talk about is how amazing all the coaches are and all these tactical brilliance shit. And yet the team that wins had all the disadvantages in that regard. What, what do they say in the NBA? You can't teach height? It's, it's the so, same thing. But you can't teach what? You can't, well, but, but, soccer so again, is supposed to be such I, a coach's I, sport. I, so again, I'm not a, I don't know much about soccer at all, but I did right. watch the I, I got up at my usual 5 o'clock, and by 6, I was like, I had seen that the game. I didn't even know that there was a game that morning, but then I saw it online. I was like, oh, I might as well watch it. Yeah, you might as um, well. I mean, Spain just controlled the ball. It seemed like every because I was both sort of watching it and reading newspapers and you know, other stuff. No, every they time, were fantastic. Every time I looked up, Spain had the ball. Yeah, every time, and it yeah. was like just it was almost like the the level. It was like a major league team almost playing. I mean, I was one nothing, so it wasn't like they wiped them out, but it never felt also, like they scored England on such a mistake. Like had, it was a real blown play. So it, it was like yeah, but it felt like England never really seemed in the game, and right. so um, yeah, I was curious about betting on that. But I think ultimately where it's getting to is. Um, this is the next phase of gambling, right? Which is, you know, people love to watch sports. People love to bet on sports. Now you, and you can do both, but now you'll be able to do both at the same time through the same mechanism. Right now, you got to still watch it up, the football game on CBS and gamble on it on FanDuel or whatever it is, right? right? Now you're literally. That huge leap of having to go from a TV to Yeah, which obviously, <laughs> but, but, you know, every time you reduce friction and then yeah, yeah. new ideas will come out of it. Right. Or like even this. Fact battle thing that that you and I are helping build. Um, I think we've called this today, um, where it's gambling on sports debating, right? It, and we're in the very we're going to be talking more about that in future future yeah. podcasts. But um, so I guess my question is, when do the casinos go away? I, so I've been arguing for a while that a lot of the traditional forms of gambling, especially casinos and lotteries, um, just aren't going to survive the technological revolution. Um, and it was interesting. So I saw on Friday night, I went to Montclair, New Jersey, where I'd never been before, a cute little town. Wow, you had quite a weekend. New yeah. Jersey, Queens. And I saw Alana Glazer in concert okay. from Broad City. Okay. And the opener, and I've been trying to, because I wanted to give her a shout out here on the podcast. I cannot find her name. I didn't catch it when she said it, when they introduced her. And I just had the not, opener for Alana Glazer. Go ahead. I mean, I've searched like 20 times. Oh, really? Um, well, I, I no, I'm not going to find couldn't, it. Couldn't find it. Right. Um, but she had a little routine about, gambling and she was she was her whole shtick which she's a millennial she was 39 and whatever that was her and it was a 80 percent female audience right so i enjoyed it um but i think other people probably liked it even more um but but i love what she was saying because i thought this for a long time when she's like i just don't give a shit about like pulling a hand slot handle and having three you know cherries or, or tr rainbows come up or whatever it is and she was joking around, but she was like, if it was like three, you know, so cycle bike bikes, and if it was like a really sleekly designed slot machine where like with my pinky, I could just sort of pull the lever, I might be into it. Um, I, I did a miserably failed SPAC a couple of years ago. And my original idea was kind of what she said, which was to build a casino specifically focused on millennials and Gen Z, where you change the underlying offerings, because my at least thesis is, the people who like to gamble, that's probably consistent from generation to generation, but you have to give them things to gamble on that they enjoy and that resonate with them. And the, the one of the big problems with the casino world today is whether it's the nicest room in Vegas or the shittiest riverboat in Indiana, it's all the same thing. It's red carpets and gold plating and wheel of fortune slot machines. And, it, and it, they are, there are distinctions, but they're distinctions kind of without a difference, right? And so it seems to me that, you know, hearing her voice all of that, 
combined with this big announcement last week where you're now fully integrating sports gambling and, and actually on the same place where you're watching the, the game itself, um, it's just the death now for at least regional casinos. I, I see why Vegas will be fine. Yeah. Well, that's um, it. It's like shopping malls, right? Like shitty casinos that do a kind of utilitarian approach or very formulaic the way you're talking about. Like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like fake. if you go, look, I ran the RFP process for Resorts World to win the casino at Aqueduct and was, was involved for a long time in helping build that place. And, it, you know, um, it does very, very well. It was a big economic winner for the state of New York. But it's like an average casino. I haven't been there in a couple of years at least. But last time I was there, it was fine. You perfectly didn't, You didn't pleasant. hit that on your tour of Queens? Uh, that's even there? further out, man. <laughs> um, that, it's perfectly fine for what it is. And maybe they've improved it a lot in the last couple of years. I don't know. But basically, it's old people, whether it was old Asian people from Flushing or old Jews from Long Island and Brooklyn and Queens or old Italians and Irish from Brooklyn and Queens or African Americans or whatever it was, it was old people gambling, right? Mm -hmm. At some point, they're all going to die out, right? And if you're not able to then flip the product to make it much more appealing to a current generation, I just don't see really why it lasts. I think it's a, I think your casino idea is a great, a great use for like a skyscraper in Midtown that's empty. Where like each floor is like there's like an air hockey floor, and then there's yeah, like a there's like a, like an axe throwing floor, yeah. and, and then and you get little cards, and you can bet, you know, against yourself, against All kinds like of other stuff, people, right? Like at each level, and you know, you, you make the betting not like thousands of dollars, like where people are going to lose their shirts, just, but like the betting's wherever the market is, for yeah, it, right. If people want to gamble more, you take bigger bets. So yeah, I would love to see that, but I think it, you know. I would be surprised if that level of creative thinking comes out of the New York Gaming Commission. Although a good friend of my dad's, Ben Brian Dwyer, happens to run it, um, and Brian's a very smart man, but I just don't know that the in the same way that, that we were talking before, that the political flexibility to think about things in a different way doesn't seem to really exist right now. Um, I, in, when we were, I was talking about trying to have save retail in New York City, I, I'm not sure that it's that different. Does uh, OTB still exist in any form, off-track betting? I don't is there like think one location so, left but maybe there's like one Long Island or something. You know, it's funny when I was a kid. Yeah, no, it was huge. I used to go. My grandfather was a huge gambling addict, mainly the horses, but but everything. Um, and he would take me to OTB and to the track all the time. I, mean, yeah. I went to OTB a ton. Um, but it's a fucking dump, right? So like, they point were being, such disgusting places. It was, yeah, but I but loved but, it, but the, the point being, to me, this new breakthrough in gambling technology just is yet another nail in the coffin for the traditional casino industry and lotteries unless they can get their shit together and start offering things that people who are younger today actually want to play and use. Um, let's do your recommendations sure. very quickly. Please limit the options because, you know, I probably you, won't. you probably um, won't. Go ahead. Yeah. Give as many as so you want. A few. One is, you really like when I'm like super specific on things like food. Yeah. Um, what do so you got? This is New York City specific. Okay. The, the lasagna at Ruby Rosa. Have you had it? Nope. So Ruby Rosa is a pizza and Italian place on Mulberry between Spring and Prince. Very, very popular. It's tough to get into. But I had always ever only eaten pizza there because it's a pizza place. And I was with someone. She had the lasagna a lot. And she said, try, try the lasagna. It's the best lasagna I ever had. Wow. It was fucking amazing. What, what was good about it? It just had like this perfect blend of like meatballs and sausage and the right amount of cheese and sauce and the like the sauce was just the flavor was like really deep oh, and fuck, rich good. it was fucking delicious and you know how i knew not only when i had it for lunch on friday but then i had the leftovers for dinner last night it was like you had leftovers you had the best lasagna ever and well, you took some home because i'd also ordered pizza oh, right. and fried calamari and salad and everything <laughs> else right um for two people um 
And then, um, so that's number one. Um, number two, TV show. Um, I think it's been out for a little while now, but it's on Showtime. It's called The Ghosts of Beirut. Have you heard of it? Nope. So it's about... Um, Doesn't sound like something you'd watch, but go ahead. It's about a terrorist from Lebanon who's the guy that basically invented or one of the sort of the suicide bombing he did the embassy bombing remember all, all of those giant embassy bombings in the Middle East especially in Lebanon he did all of those according to the show which seems it's fictional but heavily heavily researched um, and then there are real like CIA analysts and report and journalists who are come interspersed into it pre 9-11 he had killed more Americans than anyone else oh yeah I remember that so it's about the hunt for him um, and it's it's absolutely outstanding um so that's that's that. and the final one is um there's an exhibit at the guggenheim have you heard of an artist named sarah z mm -hmm. sure um wonderful show i think uh, she's I exactly like our generation yeah and yeah. i don't particularly love well i didn't like when the when we, the kids were little the guggenheim stressed me the fuck out because those walls are not that high obviously most people who listen to this probably know the, the layout of the guggenheim it's sort of a ramp all the way up it's very cool frank lloyd wright designed it um, but it felt wildly unsafe. Like if Lyle was there, I just spent the whole time stressed out that he was going to fall over the, the I've wall. never heard of anyone actually falling over Me, that. me either, but right. it's almost kind of amazing that no one has. Yeah. Um, but, and it was crowded and the, the layout of the Guggenheim is not great. Like it's, but with all of that said, like I usually don't go to the Guggenheim unless there's something I really want to see. Um, but that was great. And then if you like old New York photography, so you would love this. Do you know who Bernice Abbott is? Of course. So it's, it's a great, and it's small. It's like I was, I was there for 20 minutes. Uh, Bernice Abbott show at the Met. This is your best uh, set of recommendations ever. Thank you. Not like all, first of all, they were all really good, but also really nicely explained. Like, cause sometimes you run through the list and then I don't think Just people- Just too fast, like read yeah. this, watch that. Yeah, yeah. So this was good. All right. But you don't get any more, you gotta stop there. I'm done. Okay. All right, see you next week. See ya.